2 Corinthians 4 begins with this statement by a man who was directly inspired by God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We've refused to practice cunning or to temper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That was said by a man who was receiving direct word from the Holy Spirit. We are interrupting our regularly scheduled program for a special word from men who do not believe ourselves to be Paul's equals. And so we come before you this morning in true humility. I'm going to spend some time on a work that Tim from time to time has alluded to something that we have given a lot of ourselves to as, as pastors here. I will not be able to go through these thoughts in their entirety, but we want to show our work, and so everybody here will go home with what is a, I haven't even counted the pages, but they are numbered, so I can tell you that they are 12 pretty tightly spaced pages, partly to save the printer. And we do ask you, please, we ask everyone here, read this, think about it, pray about it and over it and being fallible men even though we've sought God we invite anyone who has a, a question about this thinking we invite you if you have insight from Scripture that we missed, we invite you. Please, let's talk about it. We'll probably, if we need to, create a forum for doing that as a group, and that's okay. Last thing I'll, I'll say, well, actually, a couple of things I do want to say. I will say this, and this Scripture that we read alludes to this. We have tried here, and we've 
very consciously sought to move away from something that many of us grew up in, in the heritage that we were born into. And that is divisiveness. A general divisiveness. People splitting up for erstwhile scriptural reasons over whether you could have a drinking fountain in the lobby of a building or should pave the parking lot. Literally, those kinds of things have marred the heritage we grew up in. We want orthodoxy to be as spare as it can be here. As spare as it can be. The great creeds of the church need to be understood for what they were. They were statements about orthodoxy that were particular to a crisis that was going on about orthodoxy. Somebody teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Somebody teaching that the God of the Old Testament was a raving, mean, egomaniac and the God of the New Testament was a nice guy. Things of that nature were the reason that the creeds happened. Our era faces another crisis about orthodoxy. And it concerns marriage and sexuality. And we've taught about it. We've given out books about it. We've decided to talk to you this morning and particularly about a topic that every one of us has been touched by. Some of us have been deeply wounded by. And that the church, particularly in America, has been compromised by. And that the Bible has a lot to say about. What Christ said about it are some of the hardest sayings that he ever uttered. Hard for even his most devoted followers to understand or accept. The topic, as you probably expect, is divorce. We have been so blessed here at Forest Home that marriages are something that virtually everyone here takes seriously. And that's not to say that no marriages have been troubled. Some have been gravely so. Tim and Karen particularly have been inspired by their own past struggles to devote themselves to a sacrificial ministry a truly sacrificial ministry to the marriages at Forest Home. Because of the grace of God, we've not had to confront a series of sinful dissolutions of marriage here, as many congregations have experienced. Yet because of that, when one of our own recently decided to end their marriage, we found that because of the unusual circumstances, we did not have the biblical foundation for making a judgment about what was happening. We were faced with what I think can be properly termed a crisis. 
What did the Bible say about divorce? Particularly in this circumstance, but also across the spectrum of possible circumstances. What principles were we as a people of God to use to think about this topic? What principles would we as elders apply to evaluate the circumstances of any given impending divorce? As Tim has mentioned, this wasn't an easy process. It was heavy lifting. But it was here that I, that really what I think of as the DNA of Forest Home manifested itself. This place has always seemed to me, and I think probably to all of us, to be one to which honest seekers of the Lord were drawn. We committed to each other as elders to continue in that vein, even in a painful situation, especially in this painful situation. We committed to seek the mind of the Father instead of some self-serving or self-justifying, easy-to-follow legal construction. We read the scripture first and foremost. We looked at every verse concerning divorce. We read across the entire spectrum of thought on the subject. We read things that made us mad. We read things we didn't want to read. The book that really snapped the pieces into place for us, that, that providence seemed to deliver just when we seemed to have come to an impasse, had a title that made me personally resist reading it and expect to hate it. But God had other plans. All of us elders admit that we came to the table like every human being with preconceptions and biases. We're all passionate and opinionated. There were battles. There were hard things said and feelings hurt. But there was also always repentance and reconciliation. And here was the thing that God did. None of our preconceptions survived this process. None of them. No man among our eldership came away holding their original opinion about this. And we emerged not distrustful and divided but unified. Sole Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. All of us married Christians at Forest Home and especially those of us held as leaders and teachers, cannot fail to uphold the foundational principle of marriage as expressed by Paul, who was thinking about Genesis 2 and the teaching of Christ and his example of faithfulness. And he, he said, Paul said this in Ephesians 5, 25 and 32, and we know this, we, most of us have this memorized. I'm actually just going to read the last part of this verse. This is about husbands and wives. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is the fundamental. If we want to have a life passage on marriage, that's the life passage on marriage. Christ's faithfulness is modeled in marital faithfulness. What the world thinks about Christ will be greatly influenced by how we approach marriage, particularly when marriages are troubled. Every teacher here has taught, because the Bible teaches it, that every scripture is profitable for instruction in doing the right thing, in being just and doing justice. 2 Timothy 3.16 was a proof text for most of us growing up. And it is a true text. So when we were looking at this situation, it seemed best to us to do this. It seemed best to begin with God's directly expressed will in Scripture, in the writings of Moses and the prophets, then to proceed to Jesus' restatement and clarification of God's will in the Gospels. And we believe that all other scripture from any other source, the Apostle Paul, for instance, must be interpreted and applied based upon the direct statements of God and Christ on the matter. We think every Christian can agree to this. So Genesis 2.24 says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's important for us as a bit of background to think about this. Becoming one flesh does not mean the sex act alone. It's not that it doesn't include it, obviously, but it doesn't mean that alone. God created us for mission. Adam, the first man, the way the scripture reads as it's translated into English, sometimes clouds this force, but Adam was literally split in two. He was divided and reunited. Todd talked about that when he was teaching Genesis. So here we have mankind made for a mission and given the mission of being fruitful and productive and filling the earth. That is filling the earth with the glory of God. It's a, pot, it's, a, it's a ministry mandate more than it's a population mandate. So the joining of a man and wife is reproductive in a lot of ways. Certainly physical progeny nurturing and training, assisting and aiding and abiding and even enduring, all producing and reflecting God's will for the purpose of, and that's going back to the Ephesians passage, for the purpose of reordering a marred and fallen creation, 
pushing back darkness and waste. Remember that God had foretold to Abraham that his descendants would spend 400 years in slavery while he was graciously giving rebellious people an opportunity to repent. We read a psalm this morning in class that, that said God was the one who judged and dealt with those people. That the military action, which if we read about it, was really pretty weird and small, undertaken by the Israelites, was not what happened here. But here's the point. While that was going on, while that fullness of iniquity was going on, the Israelites were marinating in a culture that is directly linked in Leviticus to the culture in Canaan. The sins that are recounted, the sexual sins that are recounted in Leviticus 18 are said to be sins that happen in Egypt and in Canaan. Guess what? 400 years of living in that, just like 400 years, if we watch television in America for 400 years, assumptions get changed. When God, through Moses, made a rule about divorce, virtually every scholar across the spectrum says that what he was doing was he was restraining sin. He was working with them where they were at that point in time. And in comparison to any other culture, the rules for divorce were incredibly gracious. They kept people, intended to keep people, from serial marriages, among other things, from lightly divorcing and remarrying. Scripture in Exodus 21 even talks about a slave woman who is taken as a second wife. And probably because of the first wife, we know a lot of scripture about first wives who kind of had it in for the second wife. Abraham's among others. And so the husband began neglecting that wife, withholding sustenance and withholding sexual intimacy which in that culture meant that woman wasn't going to have a child. And that was her right as a wife if she could bear. So again, God made rules there that if she was going to be put away, she was going to be supported. It was going to be known what happened. We take from that, and, and, and I'm going to use this term about what we see in Scripture. We began calling it architecture. There seems to be an architecture in Scripture about this topic that, that we could discern as we were looking at it. So here is the bottom line, we believe, of God's instruction on divorce through Moses. 
God designed marriage to be permanent, holding fast, and allowed divorce only to constrain worse unrighteousness. We'll see more about that later. Now, I said we read across the entire spectrum of thought on this. There's a British theologian named David Enstone Brewer. And you guys are welcome to follow the trail of, of you know, the books that we will reference uh, and see for yourself whether our interpretation was correct or not. But we believe it is. And we believe particularly one thing that Brewer notices, because it's also noticed by other scholars, is very important. And that is God himself is a divorcee. God calls himself a divorcee. In Isaiah 50, verse 1, in Jeremiah 3, passages in Ezekiel 16 through 23, and the book of Hosea where God illustrates this whole situation. And Instone Brewer says this, God reluctantly had to divorce her, Israel. The marriage was broken and dead, and God merely carried out the legal formalities of divorce that recognized the fact. These scriptures make the case that God is the innocent victim of a wayward and adulterous wife who abandoned him for affairs with pagans and their gods. Israel didn't trust or obey God and hedged her bets, which again we talked about in the Isaiah study. Hedged her bets, made alliances that were made explicitly because they did not trust God. There's another evangelical pastor scholar named Mark Gaither. His name's going to pop up again in a few minutes. Who says that this experience of God provides hope and instruction for Christians in terribly trying marriages. He and Brewer, Instone Brewer, it's hyphenated, reach differing conclusions based on the same set of facts. Instone Brewer argues that the benefits of this understanding about God in turn is helpful in terms of a spouse moving on without guilt. Gaither focuses his view on the fact that the ultimate desire should be restoration, not moving on. Jeremiah 3 details God's attitude as the wronged party. Beginning in verse 6, The Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She's gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. Skipping the verse 8, Then I saw that for all the causes which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. 
Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. And then skipping down to verse 14. This is the key passage that both Enstone Brewer and Gaither focus on. But particularly Gaither. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. That's several verses down from providing a writ of divorcement. So what does that, what does that mean? It means that God had put away Israel and later Judah for the purpose of bringing about their repentance through the trials that that divorce would bring and continues to woo them and even declare that he considers himself still her husband. At the end of the Old Testament is one of the strongest statements that God made through the prophets. In Malachi 2, verses 15 and 16. This is a place where Eugene Peterson comes in really handy because he can put it in colloquial terms that really, really, I think, are strong. God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride and now you've broken those vows, broken the faith bond with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God, that's what. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. God of angel armies says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. In this architectural construct, this is what we see as the bottom line of God's view expressed through the prophets. God hates divorce. And his example as a divorcee would indicate that unless there is an intent to, a, intent to attempt to bring about reconciliation through any sort of putting away, there should be no putting away. Jesus explicitly affirms God's intent in this matter in the most directful and forceful language possible when he said in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Hard saying. There are harder ones. But that is a hard saying. Because what's being said here? Whoever puts away his wife, and in that culture more maybe than today, it would have forced, in many cases, her remarriage for the purpose of survival. What does it say? It says... It forces her, makes her commit adultery. Not fornication. Adultery. Adultery is between married people. 
Now, that view is not without its critics. But it should give us some pause when the most straightforward reading of Jesus' teaching on this matter seemingly says what I just said. Now, it may be that it was hyperbole for effect. So it's a jolting statement regarding God's faithfulness and holiness in comparison to our own. But if so, it also becomes a very powerful one because God himself stayed unmarried, seeking reconciliation with his beloved. In Matthew 19, Jesus is recorded in the same or similar episode as having made a further statement in answer to the Pharisees' challenge that was so provocative that even his disciples were taken aback by it. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it wasn't so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So the critical question to be asked here is, why did the disciples react to this this way? This was the Pharisees' challenge. Jesus answers them, and the disciples are shaking their head. Saying, oh my goodness, if I'm hearing you right, I'm not even sure I should get married. Now several scholars believe that this whole episode was a discussion about a rabbinic debate between two schools of thought about divorce. I think that's probably true. I think that's likely true. I think it is true. And Instone Brewer has said that the type of divorce that they were debating about was something called the any cause divorce what we might call no-fault divorce. And he says further that it was only through recent scholarship that this was discovered. I will be honest with you, we have a little bit of trouble with the idea that the church for 2,000 years didn't have the basis for understanding this passage. We're not sure that Instone Brewer's reading is correct, but there's a very common thread. The common thread is through Instone Brewer to another scholar named Craig Keener, a, a well-respected evangelical scholar, 
to Rubel Shelley, who many of us know, who take what they call a pastoral approach to divorce and remarriage, and they do it for the best of reasons, that innocent parties to divorce have been marginalized in the church. But Instone Brewer makes the case about this, and it's, and it's also reflected in, in the others, that the passage teaches a principle. And as you're aware, we believe that principles are very important. Principles in the law of Moses are important for us. We believe 2 Timothy 3.16. And the principle is... That if a spouse is abandoned, defined according to the marriage vows of the time, which promised to furnish food, shelter, clothing, and conjugal rights, then divorce and remarriage are appropriate. The offending spouse being required to provide for the wronged spouse in the divorce agreement. Keener makes another argument about this. That Jesus' radical statements are basically designed to undercut legalists. They're bombastic statements that are supposed to, in an argument, sort of undress his, his opponent in the argument. And that what he was doing was saying that we have a new sheriff in town, a new graceful regime. The law was not graceful. Jesus' teaching is graceful. So here is the question, which one is right? Did Jesus minimize the law or did he maximize it? When we grow through the Sermon on the Mount, there are lots of radical statements, every one of which seems to be maximizing, not minimizing. There's a lot more that could be said about this. But here is... Here's what Mark Gaither, who has also seen these passages and who has argued from Jeremiah 3, just as in Stone Brewer, says, in a book, by the way, called Redemptive Divorce. That's the one I said had the title that made me crazy when I first saw it. What? How could that be? The arguments against taking the words of Jesus at face value are legion. Jesus answered a specific question, so we can't apply his statement universally. Jesus didn't mean what we think he did. Cultures and contexts are no longer the same. That was then. This is now. 
Some of the arguments are intriguing, even compelling at first blush, but they all accomplish the same result. They effectively render the words of Christ meaningless, which leaves many believers feeling uneasy, and rightfully so. Any solution to this moral dilemma must not ignore the words of Jesus or rob them of their meaning. At the end of the day, we can only make a final decision about what Jesus meant on the basis of what he said. And when he was asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, what he said in sum was this. Go back to the beginning. Realize that God made the two into one flesh. So no human has the right to break what God has joined. And frankly, this is another area where because of our heritage, it makes it hard to understand God. Those who have been stronger on the sovereignty of God have no problem with the idea of God explicitly putting two people together. To actual people, not generalized people, but actual people. Even though they had emotions, even though they had will, that God did that. And that because of that, we don't get to overrule. And we know people do overrule. And that's where a lot of this hard stuff comes in. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage, and he began with a situation where because of cultural influences, because, frankly, of false teaching that in other places he had to confront as well, that people thought the body was polluted and they weren't having sexual relations. They were saying it was wrong to have sexual relations. That's nasty stuff. We're not doing that. We're going to be in purity. And he cleared that up. No. If you do that at all, that's done as a devotion to God, not because God made your bodies dirty. Because God did make your bodies. So he cleared up that problem. But given Jesus' authoritative reminder of God's true will as expressed in Malachi, can there be anything unclear in Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 7.10 where Paul states that he is repeating the Lord's command. The husband must not divorce his wife. And obviously the opposite is true as well. Pointedly, Prior to that unequivocal statement, Paul's instruction following Jesus' teaching is that believers not divorce at all, but if they do separate, that they remain unmarried and seek reconciliation. So it's a God type of divorce. A British scholar named Andrew Cornus actually talks about 
this concept of a separation divorce. I'm going to wrap this up by saying that that concept that Mark Gaither argues, I think, very, very well is what cracked the code for us as we tried to make the, the, the tumblers click, so to speak. The idea is that God has this intent. When there was rebellion and sin and unfaithfulness, God did divorce. But it's what we would think of as a separation that God put away created consequences and waited and wooed. And it seems as that's what Jesus was repeating and strengthening was that idea. But here's the deal. That's not easy. That's not fun. That does not achieve the American dream. And I'm not saying that with any tongue-in-cheek or cynicism. We believe in marriage here, all of us. We believe that a good marriage is an incredible gift from God. We would like for everybody to be in a good marriage. But what if somebody comes among us with the same sex attraction? We live in an age where the concept of marriage is being extended into places where it doesn't belong. What do we say to that person? How do we ask them to be faithful in singleness if we don't ask each other to be faithful in singleness? Part of the problem is we have a really lousy view. I'm speaking from back here have a lousy view of singleness. Something we all need to think more about. There's a wonderful book, if you care to ever read it, called Redeeming Singleness. Guess what? Jesus was single. Paul was single. A whole lot of saints down through history have been single and single-minded in their ministry as a result. Paul said, I wish you all could be single. That's in an explicit context, but he, but he said it. Here's what Gaither said, and by the way, Gaither wrote this as a result of his own dealing with an unfaithful spouse. 
He was a pastor. What was God asking of him? Here's what he said. Redemption is costly for the Redeemer more than anyone. God understands this. You now stand in the center of your own Gethsemane. Extending grace is an act of faith, especially when the grace comes at great cost to yourself. The law of grace responds to brokenness with mercy. The law of grace places value on those who merit no worth. The law of grace sacrifices one's right to happiness and looks to the Father for joy. The law of grace trusts that imitating Christ allows us to share His glory. The law of grace is the foundational principle of what will become the new creation. The law of grace is a law God writes on one's heart so that it will beat in perfect rhythm with His. When we submit to the law of grace and invest ourselves in the work of restoring a broken relationship, we can expect to receive blessings. Got two more short things that I want to share with you. This statement floored me. by a scholar named Anthony Esselin from a book called Defending Marriage, 12 Arguments for Sanity. What the divorce regime has done is to infect with transience what ought to be the most intimate and enduring of human bonds. It has eradicated from our minds the very idea of a complete and irrevocable self-donation. Most of us will never be called upon to brave the cannons of the, of the enemy on a battlefield or to rush into a burning building to save a child. Our calls to heroism must be of a less dramatic sort, but no less real, demanding more patience and self-sacrifice and productive of more human good. It is easy to stand your ground when the enemy is far away. It is hard to do when you are face to face. It is easy to be loyal when loyalty costs you nothing. But when the hard times come, as come they must, when conversation is strained and even the bed brings no real pleasure, when the future seems but an interminable stretch of cloud and rain, then only the vow stands between marriage and divorce. And then it is that married couples most need the moral suasion and support of a genuine culture about them. To say, we will not hold you to your vow is to say, in effect, you cannot really make a vow to begin with. But it is essential to our humanity to promise ourselves. We can only find happiness by giving away our pursuit of it. We know joy when we open ourselves up to its free arrival. It is better to be chosen than to choose. Many men and women in difficult marriages would learn these things eventually if we did our duty by them and held them to their vows when they are weak. At the worst, they would be able to say, I kept my promise, and our children, and our children's children visit us together. And if we could not be excellent spouses to one another, at least we did not make them suffer the pain of divorce. And now if those children marry, they will have an example of perseverance to guide them through the strains they must meet in turn. So here is our prayerful judgment as your elders. 
we believe the architecture of God's view of divorce examined in this document is that Christians must listen to Christ and follow his Father. Great good comes from obedience. Jesus says, don't divorce unless there's adultery involved. Paul, echoing Jesus, says don't divorce and points back to God's own example, which shows us that unless there is intent to bring about reconciliation through any sort of putting away, there should be no final putting away. The separation divorce echoes God's divorce from Israel in explicitly seeking to repair the relationship, not sever it forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you will continue to instruct us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you minister to our hearts. Be beside us as we seek the will of the Father that Jesus sought so intently. Help us, Lord. Help us. We pray it in the name of the one who gave all. Amen.